Coronavirus pandemic has affected every corner of the American education system, forcing school buildings to close, educators to teach in new and unfamiliar ways, and parents to adjust their routines to supervise their children's learning. Meanwhile, the district and state school chiefs at the helm during this transformation have had to attend to an unprecedented array of logistical and technological challenges as they seek to keep students learning. What challenges are those leaders facing? How are they addressing them? And how's the effort going so far? I'm Marty West, Editor of Education Next. My guest today is Mike McGee, CEO of the organization Chiefs for Change. Chiefs for Change is out this week with a new report, Schools and COVID-19, that provides a real-time window on how district and state school systems are responding to the pandemic and will be the focus of our conversation today. Mike, welcome to the EdNext podcast. Thank you, Marty. So for listeners who aren't yet familiar with the organization, what exactly is Chiefs for Change? So Chiefs for Change is an organization uh, that supports a large and growing community of leaders across the country. Um, we have just about three dozen members who collectively serve over 7 million students across the nation. Uh, and we also have a leadership development program uh, fellowship that we call Future Chiefs, uh, which has had an additional uh, over three dozen emerging leaders um, come into our community. And so collectively now, as we support them in their response to COVID-19, we're working with leaders around the country who serve just about one out of every four kids. Um, and that's giving, a, giving us a very interesting window into how highly effective leaders across the country are thinking about COVID-19 response and supporting students and families. And just to be crystal clear about it, when you talk about leaders, you're talking about state commissioners of education, those overseeing state education agencies, but also school district superintendents as well. And then when it's the future chiefs, it's people who are in cabinet level positions in these same agencies. Is that right? That's exactly right. And so this means that you're very plugged in to what's going on nationwide, very well positioned as an organization to report on what districts and states are experiencing as an event like the COVID-19 pandemic uh, occurs. And this report tries to capitalize on that access that you have. You all organize the discussion of challenges into five categories that I almost think of as being chronological in terms of how districts had to work their way through them and how state school systems had to work their way through them. You start with just attending to students' basic needs. So what do you mean by that? And what did that look like? Yes. Yeah, so Marty, there really was a hierarchy of needs uh, to state and in particular district response to this crisis once schools shut down. Uh, obviously, leaders were working diligently even prior to schools shutting down to develop those plans for uh, closing school buildings while continuing to support students. But the first order needs included things like food. Um, many, many students in, in our members' school districts, which tend to be large urban school districts, um, were already um, in positions where they relied on districts for breakfast and lunch and sometimes dinner. Uh, many of them were housing insecure already. And the coronavirus pandemic um, just exacerbated those challenges. Uh, so immediately leaders began to think with their teams, um, how are we going to make sure everyone is fed? Um, 
how are we going to um, get some reliable real-time information about whether people are being evicted um, and what we can do for them. Um, and so uh, those were first order challenges. People rapidly moved to operationalize things like food drops, but that dramatically pointed out a, a secondary but related challenge, which is how do you even get in touch with people once you've closed schools? Um, and we had some innovative solutions to that early on that were very helpful. Yeah, my colleague Todd Rogers at the Kennedy School has written about this a little bit, that it turned out that many districts were not able to get in touch with families. They didn't have up-to-date contact information and that this became a real barrier in the early stages of responding. That's exactly right. And th this truthfully was a surprise to us and even to some of our members. Uh, for instance, uh, we learned that in a few districts, all the contact information for low-income students still lived in the free and reduced price lunch database run by their food service folks. Um, and it was not the easiest thing to access for, for district central offices. Um, we learned once we dug into that problem that the uh, USDA and the National Student Lunch Administration, uh, along with the US Department of Education, had uh, issued joint guidance about 10 years ago that it was okay to share that information back and forth. Uh, but nevertheless, some districts had never created the system that allowed that to happen. And again, once everyone was working from home, uh, it was more complicated than we would have thought to just get access to that information. And that issue begins to make the transition from the first topic you all cover in the report, basic needs, to the second big topic of challenges, which is technology, right? Before even thinking about going to remote learning, you needed to think about the technological capacity in order to do so. Uh, what did districts learn when they began investigating the state of play in that area? Well, again, uh, what they learned uh, was something that uh, in the abstract they already knew, but which they quickly gained an appreciation for how drastic and serious a problem it was, which is that you know, many of the districts that our members serve had uh, less than half of their students with uh, devices at home that they could use for distance learning, that had more than a third of their students without any access whatsoever to the internet at home. Um, and so there were a, a couple of things that we observed early on. One, to just look back at what we were just discussing, um, districts that figured out a way to make contact with every one of their students, to have a line of sight on every student in their district, really had a leg up because then they could quickly ask questions about things like connectivity to inform their solutions. Uh, one that we highlight was the, the system that uh, Phoenix Union School District in Arizona created. They serve every high school student uh, in, in Phoenix. They created a program called Every Student Every Day where they actually operationalized the ability for adults across the school system to make sure that every single high school student in Phoenix got a phone call every day. Um, and that was quite important because for instance, we learned that many students were using so-called burner cell phones and their cell phones would change every single week. Um, and so to keep on top of that, you needed real human connection between adults and kids in that system. Um, 
that really helped them uh, to be able to stand up distance learning because they could actually speak to kids and say, do you have a device? Do you have Wi-Fi in your home? What, what can we do to help you connect? Uh, there was an image from Phoenix that was, was worth a thousand words of three high school students huddled under a blanket in the pouring rain by their high school because that was the only place they could get a Wi-Fi signal um, at the time. Yeah, I have to admit, Mike, that uh, I've been a bit taken by surprise as an observer by the extent of the digital divide that's been revealed in real time in recent weeks. I think I had had the impression that the digital divide had narrowed quite dramatically, I think for, for two reasons. One is because I think if you look at access at school in the way you just mentioned, that ha there has been a lot of progress. And, and secondly, I think sometimes we think of the digital divide as just basic access to the internet and some sort of internet enabled device, which falls short of what may be needed to engage in full-time distance learning. Uh, so districts, I think we're learning this, that yes, those students may have some basic access that uh, it wasn't enough to support the activity that they wanted students to engage in. Does that sort of uh, resonate with, with what you're hearing from members? It really does. There's so many instances over the last month or so um, that have been very, very revealing. Um, and this is certainly one of them. It, and it, it has to do with the speed with which actually districts started to come up with plans for distance learning and the, te and the technology they plan to leverage. So if you're gonna create, uh, if you're gonna use Zoom, for instance, as a classroom, that comes with a set of parameters that you need on your device in order to make that function for you as a student or truthfully as a teacher. One of the things that districts discovered quickly was that many of their teachers didn't have Wi-Fi at home. Um, so figuring out who needed what was, again, one of these very early challenges that needed to be solved. Um, but I think this did reveal that there were inequities that had been underappreciated. Um, and this has been a, you know, a bit like a bolt of lightning for everyone um, in that regard. The other thing I would say on this front, as people actually began to dig into the, um, the real details of their distance learning plans, was we've seen that districts that already over the last few years had developed a coherent approach to curriculum and for teacher support on high quality instructional materials, they've really had a leg up uh, because they've been able to speak in one language to all of their teachers, to all of their principals and quickly import whatever they were doing with content and instruction online. Not to say that it's been easy um, or of similar quality, but at least they've all been speaking the same language and had a, a coherent reference point um, as they've moved to these new distance learning plans. Now, one of the issues that's been coming up as districts seek to attend to these technological needs is the question of when has enough progress been made to justify moving forward with the delivery of instruction? So yeah. some school districts most notoriously Philadelphia, we've covered in Education Next, have really taken a position that we are not going to offer any instruction to anyone until we can provide it to everyone. Uh, how have your members been wrestling with that tension? 
So it, it, first of all, I would say it's a real tension um, and it, um, it, it's a good faith tension on the part of leaders. The issues are quite complex. And the idea that districts should just move as fast as humanly possible um, and, and not let the uh, perfect be the enemy of the good I think oversimplifies the, not just the challenges, um, but the needs of students. Um, and so a couple of those tensions that I think have been quite meaningful, one obviously is that equity issue. If a third of your students can't get on the internet at home and, and you're putting all of your capacity into standing up good distance learning, well, you're not serving a third of your students at all. You know, Philadelphia is an example of a place where ultimately they, I think, got a $5 million grant from the Roberts Family Foundation to help solve their connectivity problems. Um, I, I know from talking to their leadership that they were really uh, struggling with the decision about whether to do things on paper until they could get enough connectivity that they felt comfortable um, that they were being equitable. The second one is this question of how of, of the quality of your distance learning. So many districts thought, well, yeah, we can rush something into existence, but it's gonna be pretty crummy. And so would it be better for us to take three weeks and try to stand up and implement something of higher quality um, rather than uh, rush something onto a platform that's, um, that's really not gonna serve kids terribly well. And then, if you're continuing to work on a quality solution, are you going to have to actually undo and unlearn what you just did? You know, those are real questions that I think people have struggled with. We're certainly seeing good examples of those challenges being solved now. And that response has taken us really into the third category that you all discuss in the report, that of the actual delivery of distance learning. And here, there have been a number of questions that have come up that system leaders have been forced to wrestle with. Uh, one deals with whether instruction should be focused on reviewing, perhaps deepening content that had already been delivered as opposed to continuing to move forward with the introduction of new content. Another flashpoint in debate in this area deal with whether student work should be graded or not graded. Um, how are your members dealing with those debates and, and with others as they put together a coherent plan? So, you know, a few thoughts on this. Um, one, I think our members are gonna err on the side of continuing to challenge students. I, again, I, so long as they are able to, you know, reasonably deal with the equity, the equity issues involved in terms of access to learning. Um, so if they can figure out the access issues, which they're all in the process of doing, um, the, their instinct is to continue to challenge students. And what that means is not just looking backwards, but continuing to give all students an opportunity to learn new material that's challenging and engaging um, and um, helping them to uh, continue to advance rather than fall behind. Um, and uh, in addition to that, you know, I would say continuing to assess the learning that's going on um, in a way that gives students and their parents real information about what's happening in school. One of the things that 
you know, has been a big topic of conversation in our meetings with members is if you do give every student an A, for instance, you know, one can understand why you might want to do that from the perspective of access to future learning, for instance, college admissions. But it gives no information whatsoever to students and parents about how they're doing. Um, and that's, that's a high priority for our members. So they've tried to find the balance there. One of the things they've been doing is creating some pass-fail opportunities with an option for students to get uh, graded if they want to, particularly if it will improve their grades. Um, but they're now, I would say, starting to turn to these very complicated questions around assessment with a, with a heavy emphasis on diagnosis. Yeah, we know that state tests have been canceled for the year, so uh, we're going to need to have some way of assessing where students are when schools return to in-person learning. That's right. Uh, and, and I would say, again, uh, districts and schools that already had deep partnerships with high quality curriculum developers that already had built into their curriculum a set of smart interim assessments have really had an advantage in this period, um, particularly if those assessments were translatable um, to online platforms. Um, so that work is very much in its early stages. We think it's going to need to be a big, big topic of conversation uh, as people start to turn to what the 2021 school year needs to look like. And one of the things our district members and, and truthfully our state members are beginning to call for is for uh, good, good curriculum developers and good assessment companies to really start putting their heads together on a set of assessments that would do right by students and teachers. Now, the fourth category of challenge that you discuss in the report is not one that I sitting on my own in my bedroom where I spend my time these days would have guessed would have risen to the top in this report and that's support for seniors in particular why did that emerge as something uh so important to your members so this is a, a road we've been traveling now for about two years and uh it it came about because several of our members said and, and one in particular lewis furby uh, said every year we're handing out thousands of diplomas uh, that are just tickets to nowhere uh, because we have not taken responsibility for supporting our graduating seniors on their pathway to success. And we simply can't just hand them off to institutions of higher education and employers. Uh, we ought to be doing more. Um, and that was a commitment our membership made and we've been working on these issues ever since. One of the things that we discovered along that journey was that the, the data available uh, around post-secondary outcomes for students is very, very paltry. Uh, to a breathtaking degree, even before this crisis, uh, our particularly our students who go directly from high school into the workforce um, disappear uh, from, from data systems. And what we've been hearing from members now is not only do we need to maintain that commitment to graduating seniors, and we need to work to understand where they are after they graduate and how we can better support them in, in partnership with local institutions of higher ed, with regional employers. Um, but uh, it, it's more important than ever now. And it's more important than ever because every state in America is going to be for the foreseeable future experiencing high levels of unemployment. 
Um, and so the risks to graduating seniors, particularly if they don't have an immediate higher education pathway, is going to be quite extreme. Um, so again, it's one of these areas where we're just beginning to think through what the possible solutions are in the, in the context of the pandemic, but we see it as very, very important. And that reference to unemployment leads us into the final category that you all discussed, which is the economic impact that the pandemic is having or really uh, will have on state and local school systems. I say will have because we've been talking about this issue some with Marguerite Rosa on the podcast, and she really has highlighted that most of that economic impact is yet to come. It's about next year rather than about the, the current year, uh, but we can expect it to be quite severe. You all note in the report that the CARES Act that Congress passed, it's a $2 trillion bill, only about $13.5 billion is dedicated specifically to K-12 systems. And your inclination is that that's not enough. Is that right? That's right. I mean, we're, we're not even approaching yet the kind of relief that school districts got during the 2008 downturn, which was not nearly as catastrophic as this economic downturn is and will likely be over the next couple of years. Uh, one of our members said to us on a call this uh, past week that, um, you know, this is the earthquake and it's going to be followed by a tsunami when it comes to district budgets. And uh, we certainly think that there needs to be more federal stimulus brought to bear on school district budgets and state budgets. Um, but it's not just about additional stimulus dollars. Um, states and districts are going to have to work together to really think on the policy side what districts are going to need relief from in order to innovate in this time uh, to serve um, students and families and, and truthfully teachers well um, in this environment with what are bound to be dramatically uh, decreased budgets. Um, every district in America is going to have to significantly rethink the roles of adults in all of their school buildings. Um, and that is going to come with a cost. And I've heard talk in, in the sector of people saying, well, we really need to think about how we're going to have to have many, many more substitute teachers next year. Well, that comes with an enormous cost. And I'm not sure that is the solution. Um, but I do think some innovative solutions will emerge um, including to address tighter budgets, but they are going to need great policy uh, partners at the state level to give them the, re the relief that they need to move on those innovative solutions. So I want to close our conversation by asking you both what you've been most encouraged by and also most disappointed by in looking at the American education system's response to the pandemic. I want to make sure that we end on a good note. So I'll start out by saying, what, if anything, has been disappointing? So, I, you know, I think the disappointing thing, and it, it's one of those things that we've certainly known, um, but, uh, but underappreciated, is there are many, many inequities in our system that we already knew about that this has just shined an enormously bright spotlight on. Um, and they do include things like food and housing insecurity and the lack of connectivity uh, to the internet to many, many of our students. But they also include things like 
um, these issues around high quality curriculum um, and support for teachers on the best instructional materials. The research has been telling us uh, about the importance of that for a, quite a long time now. And as a nation, we've been very slow to move on this. And if there were sort of values tensions involved in um, pushing people to adopt better materials versus giving them autonomy, we've leaned in the direction of autonomy. Um, but as I see a state now like Louisiana, which worked really hard over the last five years or so to get all of their districts and schools on high quality curriculum, it's been enormously helpful to students in this time. Um, and, and so, you know, those are some of the things that jump out at me now that I just wish as a nation we had taken more seriously over the last decade because I think we'd be better positioned right now to help students. And what's been most encouraging? You know, the most encouraging thing to me, I, I go back to something that I heard early in the pandemic uh, from someone at the WHO actually, um, who was part of their pandemic response leadership. And this was really before uh, the, the virus had created the crisis in the US that it has now. And, and what this gentleman said, whose name I'm going to forget is, the danger is not to move. The worst thing you can do is not move and do something. Um, and what's most encouraging to me is that I think Chiefs for Change members have really led um, in the spirit of those words. They have moved. Um, and they've moved with their students in mind and their parents and teachers in mind, the, the community that they serve. Um, and uh, they've done so tirelessly. A lot of late nights um, for themselves and their staff. Um, and, you know, the stories that we're trying to tell are stories about just how powerful that's been. I mean, to see Wi-Fi hotspots get put on 75 school buses in Guilford, North Carolina and deployed strategically throughout the county uh, in order to keep people learning um, was a heavier lift than probably meets the eye. Um, but it's, it is a example of the fact that uh, people are not slowing down. Um, they're waking up every day thinking about their kids and especially their kids who, uh, with the greatest need. My guest today has been Mike McGee, CEO of Chiefs for Change. You can find a link to their new report, Schools in COVID-19, How Districts and State Education Systems Are Responding to the Pandemic, on our website at educationnext.org. Mike, thanks for being part of the podcast. Thank you, Marty. Really appreciate it. You've been listening to the Ednext podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you use so that you don't miss an episode. And especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners to find us.